Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover, and I'm also the host of Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, which airs on True TV. We're currently in our off season, but you can find clips and full episodes of the show at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. So if you've never seen the True TV show, it's an educational comedy show where I share surprising, incredible facts from all across the range of human knowledge. We do science, history, everything. And on the show, I bring on experts, professors, journalists, academics, people who found out incredible things and they talk to us on TV about it for two to three minutes. On this podcast, I bring them into the studio or sometimes I talk to them over the Internet telephone uh, for a much longer period of time, 45 minutes, an hour. We get to talk about all of their incredible work in my much, much more detail. Because here's the thing, when I talk to them on set, I always end up so curious to learn more about everything that they've discovered. And honestly, that's where the podcast came from. It was just to sate my curiosity and maybe to sate yours too. So sate is a weird word, isn't it? Eh, whatever, we can use it. So, today's guest is Professor Doug Massey, who appeared on our episode, Adam Ruins Immigration. Uh, he specifically appeared in our video, Adam Ruins the Wall, which has gotten a, uh, let's just say that segment's gotten a lot of attention lately. Uh, seems like it's been pretty relevant in recent weeks, and so we thought this would be a perfect time to bring Doug into the studio and talk about his research in more depth. Douglas Massey is a sociology professor at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University, where he studies immigration between Mexico and the United States. And here's the thing. In a time when tensions are running so high about this issue, there are so many claims being thrown back and forth across the media, and it, it gets so emotional, right? People have such a crazy emotional response to this topic. Honestly, it's really wonderful to have the chance to talk to someone who is simply a researcher, someone who has spent their life looking at how the migration patterns between Mexico and the United States actually work. He has studied the number of people who are actually going back and forth, why they are traveling, the effects of them traveling. He He's dedicated his life to this subject. And so this is a chance for us just to talk to him and find out what the facts are. What level is immigration actually at? What effect is it having on the United States? And let me tell you, it's probably not what you think. I was surprised by a lot of what you're going to hear in this interview. So without further ado, we are so happy that Doug could join us over the Internet telephone from Princeton. Let's get right to it. Let's go to the interview. Well, I'm here with Douglas Massey. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Doug. That's my pleasure. Is it okay to call you Doug? Do you go by Doug? Doug is what I go by. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> it's always tough. I don't I don't personally have a name that is shortened sometimes, so I'm always a little bit cautious with other people uh, to make sure. So um, you are uh, a professor at Princeton where you study uh, uh, immigration, correct? That is correct. And how long have you been uh, studying the topic for? I started studying immigration between Mexico and the U.S. in 1978. Wow. Okay. So that that really is quite a span of time. That's that's in fact. Uh, I mean, our cultural attitude towards immigration has obviously gone through some shifts in that time. 
Yeah, I've been collecting uh, data on an annual basis every year since 1987, and really I've built up the largest database on both documented and undocumented migration between Mexico and the U.S. with uh, around uh, 4,000 data users worldwide. And uh, even the government, even Homeland Security, when they want to figure out what's really going on, they check my data. Wow, and how do you collect that data? I'm so curious. Um, every year we go down into Mexico, we pick uh, uh, four to six different communities, and we go in and do a representative survey of the communities. And for everybody that we um, interview, uh, for every household that we interview, we collect a complete history of migration and border crossing for the household head and the spouse. And then for everyone in the, in the entire household, we get information on whether they've been to the U.S. on a trip, and then we get information on their first trip and their most recent trip and the total number of trips they've made. And over the years, we've compiled uh, uh, this huge database. We just keep adding to it year by year by year and building more and more variety into the database by getting more and different kinds of communities as time goes by, expanding into new geographic areas. And uh, it allows us to really reconstruct what has been going on in the whole pattern and process of uh, migration between Mexico and the United States, really, for the past uh, four or five decades. Wow, so that that's that's incredible. So that's just very basic, comprehensive field research, seeing how people are moving on the ground, and then and then using sort of uh, scientific methods to extrapolate to broader sort of conclusions about what the patterns are. Yeah, when we co- collect a complete life history, we can figure out where what everybody was doing and when they were doing it, if they were in Mexico and if they're in the U.S. and if they crossed from Mexico into the U.S., what the wages were in the U.S., what the conditions were in Mexico. And by putting this all into statistical models, we can really figure out what's happening and and why. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, um, as you, I'm sure, know, and everybody listening to this knows, uh, immigration is is obviously a very hot button issue in the in the country right now, especially uh, with the recent election and the new administration. Um, and there's a lot of talk about it in the media. There's a lot of big claims that are made. I'm curious, from your position as a researcher, someone who's doing the the basic science, what what sort of truths do you know about immigration, about our, our relation, especially uh, border immigration with Mexico, that you know the public at large doesn't understand, or the or the new administration is missing? Well, the big factor is that illegal migration from Mexico in particular, but even more generally from the entire Western Hemisphere, has basically dropped to zero. It's been zero or negative since 2008, so we're really going on uh, nine years now since uh, since illegal migration stopped. Uh, so the idea of building a border wall is just a complete and total waste of taxpayer money because <laughs> there's no extra deterrent value to be had. The flow from Mexico has stopped and gone negative, and there's a small flow from Central America, but that is not enough to offset the loss of Mexican undocumented from the states. So the undocumented population basically stopped growing in 2008. It actually fell by a million people between 2008 and 2009, and since then has been steady at around 11 million people. People, give or take. It fluctuates around that, that high watermark, and it hasn't changed in about eight or nine years. Really? That's that, that's an amazing claim. I mean, we have this idea, obviously, uh, you know, promoted by politicians and, and uh, you know, reported in the media, but um, still, I think, you know, even people who are maybe inclined to be a little bit more skeptical of those claims uh, still have this idea that there are there are people crossing the border, you know, that, that there are still people making the trip. But is what you're saying that the the net migration is negative, like there are there are more people leaving than there are coming in or? 
Yeah, when it comes to Mexicans, that's absolutely true. It's really? true for Me Mexican undocumented migrants, but it's also true for the Mexican immigrant population in general, both legal and undocumented. What we found in our data uh, right now is that nobody is coming to the United States from Mexico without documents, and uh, some people are going back. Uh, so there's a net loss, uh, not a big one, but a net loss uh, on a year-to-year -year basis. Uh, there's continuing legal migration going on, about 150,000 entries uh, with permanent resident visas per year, and 350 to 400,000 temporary work visas of one kind or another. But these people, rather than staying, are circulating back and forth. So there's no net increase to the um, size of the Mexican population through immigration at this point. The Mexican uh, origin population in the United States is now growing primarily through through births. Uh, and so that's so the issue with uh, undocumented immigration is is not that the the inflow is is not really a, a major feature. It's it's really just that we have at this point like a large stable population of of undocumented folks, right? The eleven million that you mentioned. Yeah. And since the um, flow really stopped about eight or nine years ago, the undocumented population that's here living in the United States has simply been aging in place. And so now uh, the average uh, undocumented migrants been here like 15 years. Uh, they, and there's very few people who have been here five years or less. And as time goes on, this population just gets older and older and more and more years of residence in the United States. And of course, as they stay longer, they tend to have uh, uh, U.S.-born citizen kids. So almost all these families now, the majority of these families are in, in mixed statuses and a growing fraction are actually parents of U.S. citizen kids. And so a deportation campaign is going to uh, harm uh, a growing number of American citizens. Wow. Yeah, that's the <laughs> that, that's the, the issue. I mean, like, say, say what you will about uh, you know, desirability of, of having a large undocumented population or whatever you think about, you, you know, whatever your sort of emotional stances towards those folks, it's very difficult to know what to do once they, you know, have American citizen children that they're, that they're supporting in, in the United States. Yeah. And, um, with uh, the the huge increase in deportations under the Obama administration, there were a lot of uh, deportations of Mexican parents, and some of those parents uh, return with their citizen kids uh, because they want to stay with their children and they can't leave them with relatives or make some other arrangement in the United States. So according to Mexican statistics, there's three or 400,000 uh, U.S. citizen kids kind of languishing in Mexico, and the irony is they're undocumented in Mexico. They have no documents for Mexico and they've gone they've lived in the United States and they've grown up and they speak English and they've gone to US schools and they don't know much about Mexican history they can speak a household Spanish but they can't read and write in Spanish and it makes life really really hard for them and they're ostracized in in Mexico especially the younger ones the older ones, the ones who have been deported um, at older ages when they're really out of school, this has provided the labor force for a whole new industry in Mexico, which is native English-speaking call centers. So increasingly, when you call uh, a helpline and you get somebody that sounds like they're American, there are a growing number of these centers are actually deported uh, former undocumented migrants uh, who've been shipped back to Mexico and uh, provide a labor force for a growing industry of call centers. Really, so these are these are sort of former former Americans who were deported through U.S. government policy, or uh, former Americans is a bad term, but um, former uh, residents of the United States, right? 
uh, who, uh, uh, because they have good English skills, like somebody, somebody noticed that there was this, uh, there was this untapped labor force to, to staff call centers in Mexico. That's unbelievable. Yeah, you find them in and around um, western Mexico, around Guadalajara. You find them nor- up north around Monterey. And I was just reading in the paper not too long ago that uh, they've even started setting up these call centers in El Salvador with all the deportations of uh, Salvadoranians back into uh, El Salvador. They've got the same kind of untapped workforce going on there. So let, let me ask, Is the you said it makes no sense to build a border wall because the the rate of migration is is so low or could be even net zero um are there downsides to building a wall other than other than just it wasting money i mean or is it just sort of like ah you can build it but it's not going to do anything so it's a waste well it's a huge waste of money many billions of dollars that could be more productively used for other kinds of infrastructure than the wall that's solving a problem that no longer exists Building a wall and, and continuing the high level of enforcement uh, is also counterproductive because to the extent that there is any migration into the United States and if it were to come back in the future, the the effect of, uh, of, of a wall and a massive militarization of the border is actually that it doesn't keep people from coming in. They manage uh, to evade most of the the walls and the enforcement effort, but uh, it costs a lot and it's very scary and and it's risky and the death rate is quite high. And so once they've crossed the border, they just hunker down and stay. So the irony um, during the period from, say, 1985 to 2005, when there was a substantial flow of migrants into the country, the, uh, the militarization of the border and the 700 miles of wall that we did build during that period had the perverse effect of keeping people from going back rather than stopping them from coming in. And so we ended up spending about 3 or $4 billion a year in border enforcement only to double the net rate of uh, undocumented migration to the United States and, and double the rate of undocumented population growth because net migration wow. e- equals in-migration minus out-migration. Our policy had no effect really on in-migration, but it had a big effect on out-migration. And so we spent uh, a whole bunch of money to actually make the problem worse. Wow. So, so if I can uh, take your <laughs> very measured uh, mathemati- <laughs> mathematics and sort of, you know, uh, refine it into my uh, uh, comedy brain and, and do the simple version, uh, that enforcement turned this sort of natural migrant labor. So I'll cross the border and pick a couple oranges and then and then head back home when the growing season's over uh, by crea- by making it such a high bar to get over the border. Well, now I got to sneak past guards. I got to hop a fence. I got to pay a coyote, uh, you know, a, a year's savings uh, in order to get across. Those people are still able to get across. But now it's because the trip is so much more fraught. It turns that sort of migrant labor into into permanent residence in a way. Yeah, it did that. And the other thing it did was push uh, the migrant flows away from uh, from California. So if you look at uh, census data, for example, from 1980, uh, from 1990, and look at who all the Mexicans who entered the United States between 85 and 90, two-thirds went to California. But then we militarized the border, and you fast forward to uh, the year 2000 and look at who entered between 1995 and 2000, only one-third went to California. And that one-third going to California has persisted uh, uh, up until the present date. So there's a permanent uh, deviation of the flow away from the state of California and to new destination areas 
all over the United States. So the fastest growing Mexican populations ended up being in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Nebraska, Iowa, uh, Missouri, and so on. And so uh, the other thing that happened was we, uh, by spending all this money on border enforcement, we ended up transforming what had been a circular flow of mail workers going to three states, California, Illinois, and, and Texas, into a settled population, a much larger population of families living in 50 states. So wow. again, we, sh- we shot ourselves in the foot. Yeah, I mean, if, if you consider that kind of migration to be something that's that's avoidable, then that actually makes the, the problem worse in a way. Um, well, if, if, migration always has economic benefits and it also has social costs. Yeah. Um, when you have a circular flow of male workers for seasonal work and construction and agriculture, you reap the economic benefits and you pay very few social costs. But if you force uh, a settlement process to occur through policy interventions, then you create families and they carry the social costs. And so uh, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But that's what's going to happen. So why is it that it shifted away from California? Was it because that was where all the enforcement was? So once people got over the border, they just sort of went deeper into where uh, there was less sort of uh, immigration enforcement or... It was a combination of factors. Um, I think the, the biggest single factor is the fact that they so heavily militarized what had been the busiest border crossing sector along the entire 2,000-mile border. So they built not one, but now they have three walls, and they have just a massive amount of enforcement resources stretching from the Pacific Ocean up into the Sierra Mountains. Uh, and it's just become – it was too risky and too costly, and uh, people just went around it. And hmm. so there, there was a, a diverging of the flow away from California through the Sonoran Desert into Arizona. And before the border militarization really began in the early 1990s, the Arizona sector of the border was quiet. There, was very, there were very few people crossing there. And Arizona had not been a, a prime destination for Mexican immigrants since the 1920s. And it, the fact that it turned into a, a destination and, a, and the largest single crossing point is all because of our own policy actions. We just shifted the flows westward uh, through the desert and into, into Arizona. Wow. Um, I, I also have the sense that that sort of migration of, of uh, uh, male migrant labor is something that has a really, really long history between the United States and Mexico. And and please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, we often hear that, well, you have entire industries based on on that labor um, that uh, that rely on migrant labor. But not only that, I get the sense that, the, you know, some of those industries like uh, uh, farming and whatnot, that. Uh, have relied on that labor for for decades and decades, and in fact, we're we're built on it. So, you know, there's an extent to which we say, "Oh, they're coming and taking American jobs." It's really well, no, these are the folks who were always doing that job the entire time. Is that the case, or? Um, yeah, it's, uh, for an industry like food processing and agriculture, agriculture, that's certainly the case. Um, we started recruiting Mexican workers from back way back in the early 20th century, uh, really uh, in the early 1900s. And 1907 is a big date because that's the date that the U.S. negotiated its so-called gentleman's agreement with Japan to cut off the supply of uh, Japanese laborers into the West Coast. Uh, the gentleman's agreement was that uh, the United States agreed not to ban ch- uh, Japanese workers from entering in return for which Japan promised not to let them come here. Uh, so so Japan was a rising industrial power and didn't want to suffer the shame that other countries had, had experienced. And so they negotiated with uh, the Theodore Roosevelt administration this gentleman's agreement. 
And that created immediate labor shortages all over the Southwest. And uh, pretty quickly, very quickly, um, the employers on the, on the U.S. side started recruiting in Mexico. Uh, and that was very convenient because uh, Mexico had just recently been connected to the U.S., uh, a massive investment in railroads. And, and the main investors in the Mexican railroad system were Americans. And so the, not, the rail lines went north to south, uh, basically designed to carry uh, agricultural exports out of Mexico to markets in the U.S. And so the employers in the U.S. just rode the rail lines down till they started encountering large population densities in Mexico and simply started recruiting. And uh, that really took off in 1917 when the when uh, really 1914 when the World War I broke out and cut off all the flows of European workers to the U.S. Uh, recruitment of Mexican workers redoubled, and then uh, when we put in place the quotas to stop Southern and Eastern European migrants from entering in the 1920s, Mexicans became the largest single. Um, migrant population entering the country because there were no numerical restrictions on Mexican immigration at that point in time. And between, during the 1920s, the rate of out-migration from Mexico in terms of the number of people living in Mexico versus the number leaving was actually higher in the 1920s than it's ever been. And the Mexican population doubled in size in a, in a mere 10 years uh, a period. What brought that boom in migration to an end was the Great Depression in 1929, and the U.S. launched a massive deportation campaign that ran from 1929 to 1935 when we deported about 450,000 Mexicans from the United States. And then the rest of the Depression years, there was no work, and so there was very little movement. And when the U.S. entered the Second World War at the end of 1941, in 1942, um, there was a major draft on and labor shortages uh, occurred all over the, uh, the, the Southwest, and the U.S. approached Mexico and negotiated a binational labor agreement called the Bracero Program to allow Mexicans to enter the U.S. for temporary periods of, of labor. And that program lasted until um, the end of 1964. And its height in the 1950s, it was bringing in 450,000 Mexicans per year for temporary worker for temporary work and farm farms and uh, agriculture and selected other industries. And so. Um, really, since 1942, migration between Mexico and the United States has been almost constant. Wow, and th yeah, that's the uh, you know sort of picture that we paint in the second part of our uh, of the episode you appeared on. That uh, in many ways, the the migration of of Mexicans to the United States is something. Well, a you portray it as this sort of natural process in response to different policy and economic changes, but then it's also something that the American government or American corporations have at many times accelerated because of a need that they had for. Uh, for more labor, uh, that, that their labor needs were not being met by uh, uh, by the American workforce. Um, and so they invited them in. But then the uh, it, it seems sort of perverse that we <laughs> then eventually have this kickback reaction of, uh, oh, hold on, I can get them all out of here. It's it's such a it seems like a rather perverse cycle. Yeah. And it's uh, been a recurrent one uh, throughout American history. Uh, in the case of uh, Mexicans, uh, there hasn't really been uh, an American, native-born American worker that's not Latino working in American agriculture since the 1930s. And the 1930s was the, the, the Dust Bowl, and we had the famous wave of Okies going to California and working in the fields. But uh, in 19, after the Second World War ended, the Okies didn't come back because now they were all working in unionized jobs and defense industry in California and elsewhere – 
And so it necessitated us to recruit the Mexican laborers, and, and they were the backbone. They still are the backbone of the agricultural labor force in the United States. And I think that you're just not going to be able to pay a native-born American enough money to go out into the Coachella Valley and harvest watermelons in 110-degree heat. <laughs> the, mon- the money you would have to pay them would make those watermelons so expensive they wouldn't be competitive on any market. Wow. So, so uh, yeah, I was about to ask, you know, to the person who says, well, you know, well, if we stop, you know, if we get all of the Mexican labor out of here, then uh, we can uh, have have Americans be doing this work. Um, why? Uh, why is it that you can't pay Americans that much? Is it just that the uh, the Mexican laborers are or the, you know, migrant laborers are willing to work for less and then and then send the money home or? Well, there's various reasons. Um, one is that Americans have other options, and uh, they can find other uh, other jobs that pay. Maybe they don't even pay as much, but they're not as arduous and as difficult, uh, and they're more willing to work in the McDonald's for uh, minimum wage than to boost their wages for seasonal labor uh, out in the, in the the watermelon fields in the Coachella Valley. Uh, the other thing is uh, stigma. Um, it's a very low status occupation, and when you grow up and live in the United States, you you learn the U.S. status system, and it's uh, below people's dignity may, often to become an agricultural worker. It's backbreaking work, and it's very low status. But if you're a Mexican, the wages are very high, and if you circulate back and forth, you earn high wages in the U.S. and come back, and you actually buy high status in the home country. So you can ignore the low status in the United States and actually, through your earnings, buy a significant amount of status back in your home community in Mexico. And that was the formula that worked for for many, many years until we disrupted it by militarizing the border. Man, uh, I also something that always stuck with me was I read a number of years ago um, a book by a, a journalist named Ted Conover, which I always have to say no relation. It's weird that it's not a common name, so it's funny that he has my last name. Uh, yeah. But he he went and tried to do migrant farm work uh, in writing about the immigration issue. Um, he he went and tried to join a, a farm as a fruit picker and described it as. The uh, he described it as skilled labor that the it actually takes skill to pick you know so many oranges a day without physically injuring yourself because you need to learn how to you know how to hold your body correctly how to pace yourself etc. Um, he found himself physically unable to uh, do anywhere near the work that the migrant laborers were doing because they came from a long <laughs> tradition and like training in the field of uh, agriculture work. Yeah, I was a kid. I grew up in Washington State, and they had a lot of strawberry farms, and I used to work in the summers picking strawberries. It's really hard work, and it's hard to make any money. And when you see somebody who is really good at it, it's quite impressive. They can pick like three or four flats to my one, and they make a lot more money. Uh, but they're much more skilled and, and they know what they're doing. It takes, it's not something you just come in and, and do as a, as a menial job. It takes, takes a fair amount of effort and training and learning to do it. And, uh, that's an important niche that's filled in the U.S. economy. And the 
problem that most people have in thinking about economics is that they think of, well, there's a fixed pie, and if Mexicans come in, that's taking something away from me. But economies aren't fixed pies. They're dynamic, and they grow. And so the presence of Mexicans harvesting uh, strawberries in the United States means that there um, is a nearby food processing plant to turn the strawberries into jam. And that produces more jobs, some of which also go to uh, migrant workers, but it also produces a lot of jobs for engineers and supervisors and higher-order white-collar positions for American workers. And if, if the bottom of the workforce didn't exist, then that upper part wouldn't either. Well, I'm here talking to Princeton professor Douglas Massey. We'll be back in just a moment, so stick around. My name is Patrick. My name is Parker. Max Funcon has been a huge inspiration in my life. And now I have this network of friends that I've made that span literally across the entire globe, and they're some of my favorite people in the world. I truly cannot believe the amount of wonderful and lasting friendships that have come out of this. If you feel like you might not fit in, as long as you're a good person, you'll fit in because everyone there is good and amazing and kind and wonderful, and you should absolutely go. It will be the best decision of your life. Make a ton of new friends like Parker and Patrick at Max FunCon. Tickets for Max FunCon and Max FunCon East are on sale now at maxfuncon.com. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to Princeton University sociology professor Douglas Massey about immigration. Oh, so, uh, I'm just so curious. Um, do you have a sense of why, uh, you know, as a as a researcher who's who's been going and looking at these uh, issues on the ground, just collecting the basic data, reporting on it, uh, you know, you're like, look, the the data is right here. We've done the work, but it seems that the you know government, uh, the current government, and the uh, media at large or the American public at large sort of aren't aware of it. Do you, do you have any sense of of why our idea of how immigration works is so different from the reality on the ground or why we neglect the the data so much? Well, there are a lot of um, operatives uh, out in the world who uh, benefit from making people think that we're being invaded by a threatening population, the brown-skinned people from south of the border. And they've been pumping a lot of misinformation and disinformation and and really false information into the public sphere. And it's very hard for a lone academic like me to break through all that well-funded nonsense. Um, the fear is a well-known political motivator. And so if you think we're being invaded by rapists and criminals from Mexico and uh, are being overrun by Islamic terrorists and that Islam is uh, rapidly increasing in the population, uh, that's a motivator for some segment of of the American population. So when you ban uh, Muslim immigrants and you build a border wall, it really has no practical effect. It, it, It doesn't really make us any safer or more secure, but it sends a clear message to a certain segment of the electorate who's uh, nervous and upset by really economic uh, problems that uh, are very real, but also uh, they're very upset about the uh, changing dem- demographics of the United States. And so it sends a message to this this group of people that, well, we these are the people we want to exclude. These are the people who really can't be Americans. We can't. Uh, the, by building a border wall, we signal that Mexicans aren't acceptable as, as Americans. 
Americans. And it's it kind of works in the short term to uh, mobilize a, a certain part of the base. But for American society as a whole, it's it's very destructive because the future of America is one of of diversity. Even if we stopped immigration tomorrow and brought it to zero, we'd still be moving inexorably towards what demographers call a majority-minority society, right. where no no single group uh, is in the majority. This is already the case in California, where you live, and uh, that's how the nation is heading because of births. So if you look at births, about 25% of the births are now to Latinos, about 13% are to African Americans or blacks, about 7 or 8% are to Asians, and then there's another chunk that are all mixed up, and, and who knows what they are, but they're mixers of all those three groups. And now, at this point, less than half of all births in the United States are to white European origin mothers. And so that's the future demography of the country. And that's just built into the demographic structure already, even if you were to stop immigration. So the more you demonize um, what's really the future demography of America, the more you're going to upset and entangle American society, and the more you're going to create instability, both economic and social. Wow, that's that's an incredibly it's an incredibly vivid picture. And yeah, there's a particular year that that's supposed to happen, correct? It, it, just by looking at the demographics, where they think it's going to tip, and I, I think it already is majority minority in terms of births, right? But that at some point those births are going to catch up, so that the population as a whole will be forty nine percent white, and uh, it, so white people will be a plurality, but no longer a majority, correct? Um, yeah, but we have to take those projections with a grain of salt because sure. the way the way we classify ourselves is pretty arbitrary. And mm-hmm. so if you looked at the projections in the uh, early part of the 20th century, you could say, oh, my God, if we don't stop this immigration, Chicago is going to be Polish in 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you tell that to Dan Rostenkowski, who was a, a chair of the House Wayne's Means Committee. By the time he became uh, that powerful uh, person in Congress, he was as American as apple pie. Uh, and the same thing is happening when you look at intermarriage rates between Asians, whites, and Latinos. They're they're actually quite high in the second and third generations. And so we're probably evolving into uh, a world where uh, a new social um, groups will be forming and new labels will be applied. I think the biggest problem that uh, will face the United States is, is the continuing legacy of race in terms of African Americans and what's going to happen between uh, African Americans and the rest of American society because those lines are, are much harder to cross and much more durable and much more longstanding in, in American culture and society. Wow, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so funny. I've heard both of these points that, uh, you know, we will soon be a majority-minority country or, or within the next few decades, and that... Um, uh, race and especially the idea of whiteness is is somehow not fixed that uh, you know you have groups that uh, especially uh, I think your example if you look at uh, other you know European immigrant groups were once considered not white and were considered threats to uh, true Americanness and are now part of that uh, majority and, and have become folded into the majority those are almost sort of two contrasting ideas and it, and it makes it makes the the whole issue seem so so malleable and uh, I don't know, talking to you about it really, really opens my mind up to, to all the different ways of looking at the issue. Well, the United States has always been a remarkable machine for taking in a whole bunch of people speaking a number of different languages, bearing a number of different cultures and turning them into Americans. And 
what an American is changes over time right. because of the arrival of the immigrants. But in, in the end, we all end up being Americans. My grandparents on my mother's side were immigrants from Finland with grade school educations. And here I am, a professor at Princeton University. So um, we are a country of immigrants, and, and being a country of immigrants is always what has made us great. Just try to imagine the inventions that wouldn't have happened in the United States if it weren't for immigration that's occurred over these many years. And uh, just look at the way the economy is organized today. Immigrants really provide uh, a huge boost to uh, our human capital and to our financial capital and to uh, just the um, sheer economic growth that goes on in, in a place like the United States. Yeah, and it's, fa- it's fascinating that you see, for instance, uh, the Silicon Valley companies sort of uh, becoming politically mobilized right now because that's an example of probably one of the most you know productive sections of the American economy right now. You know, people say, oh, Americans don't make things anymore. Well, in, in tech, we certainly are, are, you know, first in the world in terms of, uh, you know, these sort of uh, world-changing uh, inventions and companies. Uh, but so many of those companies were founded by first or second or third generation immigrants or, you know, have high-level immigrant uh, w- workers or executives or et cetera. Um, and uh, it's, it's so visible in one of the most prominent segments of the American economy. Yeah, and if you look at Silicon Valley, uh, they were kind of complacent when Trump was being elected and when he finally won the election. They said, oh, this won't affect us. But what's the first thing that happens? He, he, he puts a freeze on visas and it does affect them. And uh, we're really dependent on global flows of human capital and labor and uh, financial capital. And uh, if you try to close off your country from the dynamic global economy, you'll just make yourself poorer in the long run. There are a lot of problems, and there are always distributional problems when there's an economic change. Every, every economic change brings winners and losers. And the problem with our country is a lot of people made a lot of money uh, uh, through globalization, through technological change, and made billions of dollars, and they were just ideologically unwilling or just plain selfish and stingy and were unwilling to tax themselves at fairly modest rates to provide funds to help the people who are harmed by these uh, transformations and help them get back onto a road to where they can have a, an important role in the economy. It really isn't that hard to fix, but our own ideologies get us trip us up, it seems like. And uh, it does no great service to the country, uh, to American society, and to our competitiveness in what's really a global economy. Yeah, it's uh, it's so striking because it's uh, having a, a clear-eyed view of how immigration actually works uh, is the one thing that can help us sort of ameliorate the actual problems caused by globalization or caused by the changes in the economy. But it, uh, it you know, looking at the at the research that you do and uh, the information that we get from from folks who are looking at it on the ground, but that seems so that seems so hard <laughs> to get into the political sphere. It seems like our ideas about immigration are so much based on these sort of weird macro memes that are that are floating around that aren't tethered to any base reality and and actually end up causing more problems than uh, or or even exacerbating the the problems that they seek to address. Well, sometimes they create problems that weren't there to begin with. And uh, that's often the case with um, uh, simple-minded solutions to problems in in society. Um, When I talk 
uh, out in public. Uh, some people sometimes come up to me afterward and say, oh, well, it's easy for you to say these things because you don't have to compete with immigrants. Uh, you're a college professor. And I said, well, have you been on a college campus lately? Half, you know, <laughs> half the faculty is foreign-born. Half my department's foreign-born. Right. Uh, we all live in the same international world, and and the way to uh, prosper is to adapt to that and figure out creative ways of solving the problems to move forward, not to hunker down and pretend it doesn't exist. Right. Well, so it, to that end, what what do you think a sensible immigration policy would look like? Well, the critical factor right now is finding a pathway to legal status for the 11 million people who are out of status. Mm -hmm. The longer that goes on, the worse it is going to be for us as a country. Uh, and to be perfectly frank, if the baby boom had half a brain, they'd want to legalize these people so their wages would rise, their tax revenues would come up, and they would be able to support their retirement. Um, having them uh, languish at the bottom of the labor market with nowhere to go, especially these dreamer kids who've grown up in the States and are doing very well, um, they should be able to move ahead to earn higher salaries, to buy the houses that the baby boomers are going to be giving up when they, when they retire, and uh, fund a, a social security system into the future. Uh, what we've got now is the worst possible outcome for everyone. Oh, wow. Yeah, because you're going to have that population of 11 million aging but uh, not able to uh, – <laughs> yeah, aging and not be able to support themselves, which is going to be, I can only imagine, a, a major humanitarian uh, disaster. But then also, yeah, those – uh, it reduces their ability to pay into all of the economic institutions that are going to keep the rest of us solvent. Well, it's a huge drag on the U.S. economy. Um, the evidence shows that um, before 1986, when um, the U.S. Congress made hiring undocumented migrants uh, illegal, there was no wage penalty to uh, undocumented status. They made the same wages as anybody else. Um, after that, a wage penalty started to grow, and, it, and it's grown over the decades. And we now know that if you are undocumented, you earn lower wages. And if you're undocumented and work in a labor market with a lot of other undocumented migrants, you even earn even lower wages. And this is largely a function of decisions we made to criminalize undocumented work a long time ago. But the way to remedy that is simply to give these people legal status and let them compete on free and open markets. Wages will rise and it will rise for everybody in these markets, not just the migrants themselves. And as the wages rise, uh, they'll be in a better position to buy and energize the American economy and they'll produce more talk, uh, taxes to support the baby boom when it retires. So let me ask, uh, what would you say to someone who, you know, made the, you know, said in response to that, well, hold on a second, these people are, you know, the 11 million people you talk about, are they are de facto not Americans, right, because they're not American citizens. Uh, they came here illegally. Uh, they, you know, we don't uh, owe them anything. Why should we take care of them before we take care of our own, right? Why should we look out for their, uh, you know, why should we try to raise their wages rather than trying to raise the wages of American citizens? I mean, that's an argument that has, you know, I, I understand its, uh, its appeal. Um, yeah, um, but by taking care of their situation and removing the burden of uh, illegal status to them, we actually help the entire economy and raise everybody's wages over the longer term. And we have to remember that we've been 
taking advantage of their their labor and their work for a long time, and they've been paying into Social Security, uh, usually in, in um, under uh, fictitious accounts, right. and, and they probably won't be able to collect from it. So it's been a net bonus for us at this uh, to this point. Uh, but I think we could do even better if we were to, at this point, give these people legal status and let them move ahead in in, in a country where they're already well-established and well-integrated and, and where their children really are poised to do very well as long as they can overcome the burdens of being undocumented. Uh, and the final point is that um, violations of immigration law are not uh, vi- uh, they're not criminal acts. They're violations of civil law. And uh, civil law is like parking ticket or uh, something like that. It's it's not a criminal matter. When deportations don't go through the criminal courts, if you committed a crime, you become deportable. But the, the thing that gets you deportable is that you are a criminal. Most of the 10, 11 million people are not criminals. We know that... Um, Crime rates are lower in immigrant neighborhoods than in native neighborhoods. And we know that immigrants on the whole are less likely to commit crimes than natives. So um, really there's no good reason not to move forward on a on a broad program of legalization to give a, a, a pathway to legal status for uh, all these people. And especially this will ease the burden on their U.S.-born kids who always have to look over their shoulders because they're worried about what's going to happen to their parents. Wow. I, I'm sorry. I, I just want to return to that point. I had no idea. So a violation of immigration law is not actually technically classified as a crime in the United States. It's a violation of civil law. So so folks who are undocumented immigrants are not, in fact, criminals. Um, a lot of things associated with undocumented migration have been criminalized over the last several years as part of kind of the crackdown on security. But um, the basic uh, – just being undocumented in the United States is uh, is a violation of civil law and uh, violations of the immigration code are, are in fact, uh, violations of civil law. And they don't get handled through the criminal courts. They get handled through an entirely different uh, uh, judicial bureaucracy. Wow. See, that's I mean, you know, my whole show is about surprising truths. And that that surprises me uh, right now because, uh, you know, it's presented to us so often as, uh, look, these people have broken the law. They're uh, uh, I don't know how often the word criminal is stated, but that's always the the implication that, uh, you know, these people are felons in, in some way. But the fact is that even as far as our government is concerned, they're not. That's. That's incredibly fascinating. Uh, what, what do you think about the um, argument that, you know, there's a disproportionate amount of actual crime flowing over the border that, you know, there's uh, that there's drug dealers or or et cetera? Uh, is that is that the case in your research or? Well, if you look at the data, the uh, U.S. counties that are right along the Mexico-U.S. border are among the safest in the country. El Paso in particular, which is across from Juarez, which has a bad reputation. But in El Paso, it's one of the uh, the more peaceful places along the Mexico-U.S. border. And, and crime rates are actually lower than the national average. Um, the problem with uh, drugs and immigration is that um, they're demand-driven. The bottom line is drugs are actually quite popular in America, and lots of people want to take them. And, uh, <laughs> That's and, very true. 
and uh, as long as that's true, uh, there's, there's go- the markets are going to work to create uh, a supply. And the more you try to interdict and block, the more opportunities you create for criminal elements. And you um, drive up the prices temporarily, which induces more suppliers, which brings the prices down. So over the long term, you actually end up with lower priced drugs. Wow. So are you are you making a backdoor argument for drug legalization, Doug, or not? Um, well, I think it should be uh, you should move away from criminalization and, right. and medicalize it, and 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 all the studies show that this would be much more cost effective. Uh, but uh, it runs into ideological objections. Now, uh, moving on from uh, border immigration quickly, do you have any feeling about the you know the the recent immigration ban the new administration has put in place, or uh, uh, or is that something on? You know, oh, that's that. That's not my field. That's that's elsewhere. No, it's. I, I think it's a a, a big mistake, uh, and uh, it's signaling to the world that oh, America doesn't like Muslims, and in fact, uh, uh, maybe even ISIS is right, and we we are engaged in a, a war on Islam, and we don't want that will create more terrorists than it will prevent, and the countries that have been banned have not produced any terrorists that have attacked the United States, right. Uh, and our whole uh, security system uh, is maladjusted. Um, you want to build a wall on the border, but our uh, our two Atlantic and Pacific coasts are wide open, and our northern border is practically undefended. And we think by f- enforcing one out of four borders, we're going to somehow be more secure. And you ban five or six countries, but there's still lots of other countries, and there are many other ways in. So we keep doing things that have a symbolic resonance, but really don't have any practical value and you know it has no effect in saving us from uh, preventing terror from going on uh, but the Mexico-US border has become this symbolic trope in American life where what a, what a politician does to show that he cares about America is when there's an, a new threat you call for more border enforcement wow. and it's just and it's just one border so before it was um, communists in Central America, then it was Al Qaeda, then it was ISIS, and you'll notice that when we had the Ebola scare, there were people calling for closing the Mexico's border because of Ebola. But um, hmm. that's just political theater; it's got no practical value whatsoever. Yeah, and that's it. Almost reminds me of uh, Bruce Schneier's concept of, of security theater that we that we've discussed uh, earlier on this podcast and, and on the show. But the difference with the issue with this kind of theater is that it's so much aimed at specific countries or specific groups. It's not a uh, yeah, we're not we're not building a a wall all the way around the country or or uh, denying visas from you know from every country around the world. It's just aimed at these specific groups. Uh, and and so the symbolism is inescapable. I mean, it strikes me that uh, you know often in the in the current discussion about the uh, about the immigration ban. And, and by the way, uh, I, I hope that things don't move so quickly that by the time this is released, you know, we're we're recording this at a time when when that uh, uh, ban is still being discussed by the courts uh, and in the media. Uh, so you know, f- for folks listening to this later, maybe things will have moved on. But so much of the argument is about. You know, the administration says, well, this is not a uh, this is not a ban on on Muslims overall. It's only a few uh, specific countries. It's it doesn't apply apply to that many people. But it seems as though a lot of the purpose is symbolic, that the purpose of the wall is symbolic and that the purpose of this ban is symbolic. And the um, it, it, it seems like a. The point that you're making is that a fight over symbolism is not a uh, inconsequential one. That's that symbolism is important to how the rest of the world views us. 
Symbolism is, is important because we send out a message about who we are as a society and who we think our enemies might be. Uh, but uh, the empty symbolism also has practical consequences. As we saw when we, re, uh, when we militarized the Mexico-U.S. border, it didn't solve the problem of undocumented migrants coming over. It actually made it worse by promoting their settlement in the United States rather than their circulation back and forth. Well, we're getting uh, – we have to wrap it up in just a bit. I, I do want to ask you this. If – you know, you said earlier, you, you know, you're in a position as just one academic and, uh, uh, you know, so it's sort of hard to move the needle of the culture. But if there was one, you know, message that you could sort of blast out to Americans overall, you know, from your vantage point as someone who's studied immigration since, you know, what, I think you said the late 70s, uh, what you know? What would that message be like? How, how? What's the best way that we could change the culture? Well, Americans learn to need to learn to be more skeptical about things they see, hear, and uh, read, especially on the internet. And whenever they see messages about immigration or really anything that have a strong undertone of fear, and it's clear that fear is part of the message that's coming out, that's when your detector should go up and you should really be skeptical and look into really what's being said and where the information is coming from. Uh, people trust too much in what they hear and see, and especially on the Internet, which is completely unfiltered and completely hmm. free for anybody to put anything up. And you have to be skeptical and you have to be critical if you're going to survive as a democracy. Democracy is only as good as its citizens. And, um, and unless citizens are really informed and uh, not following alternative facts and fake hmm. news, uh, then uh, it's not going to be very effective. Well, here's the here's the issue that I mean, I would uh, on a normal week, I would go out on that note because I think that's a really wonderful one. But I have noticed that, uh, you know, when discussing issues like this that are so politically hot button that people are so emotional about that, that it's um, very common for someone to come back and say, OK, well, you're fake news, right? You're you you're presenting alternative facts. This is a uh, 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 you know, you're you're coming from a biased point of view. Uh, and uh, why should we listen to you rather than, uh, you know, I've got my own you know, holding my own study in the air. I've got my own facts right here that refute everything that you're saying. Um, why should people of, of a reasonable frame of mind uh, listen to uh, the point of view that you're expressing here rather than any other? Well, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the late senator, said uh, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but we're not entitled to our own facts. And so when somebody says they have a fact, you have to ask where that fact comes from. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm an academic. I probably have a, a liberal bent, uh, and I have, every, like everybody else, my prejudices and biases. But all the work that I do, I put through a process where it's reviewed by other critical people who are basically looking to poke holes in the arguments that I'm making and find problems with the data. And uh, just because they may even share my political beliefs, their job is to uh, find holes in in the research that I do. So everything that I do and things that I say and when I make public pronouncements, it's already been through a peer-reviewed process where other people have looked at it critically. It's a, it's gone through a critical review process. It's uh, made it into a journal. The journal's been read by people. People uh, can question it. 
all of the data that I use for my research either comes from public sources like the census and the CPS and the American Community Survey, or it comes from my own research project, the Mexican Migration Project. But all of the Mexican Migration Project data is publicly available, and anybody can download it to check on what I'm doing and uh, see whether I'm right or wrong. Uh, when you look at some many of the opponents that I end up debating, they work for uh, an organization that has a point of view, and their job depends on uh, honoring that point of view day in and day out. They don't put their uh, information through any kind of peer review process. It doesn't get scrutinized. Uh, and yet, uh, in a debating situation, it's, it's treated like a point-counterpoint. Oh, well, there's two points of view. But um, really, journalists need to step up and do a better job of saying, well, this person has a credible case that's consistent with a lot of evidence that has convinced a lot of people. And this other point of view is just nonsense. Right. Well, I, I and I love the way you put that, because I think so much of the time we live in this world where these, uh, you know, sort of debates seem to the average person. He said, she said, you know, you've got your you've got your facts, you've got your facts, or the, that the point of view is very subjective. But the process that you're talking about, about how we find the information um, uh, about peer review and, and uh, transparent data and et cetera, that's an objective process. We can uh, look without a filter at how you find your information versus how other people find their information and say, OK, we know that Doug did his due diligence here to a degree that uh, perhaps the person he's speaking to uh, didn't. Or at least we can then have a conversation. We can now have a conversation about the merits of how you uh, found your data, which is uh, at, at the very least, if someone wants to dispute it, we can, you know, move to that conversation where now we are debating facts and figures and evidence gathering methods rather than, uh, you know, politics and emotion. And then hopefully we can draw conclusions based on that uh, objective conversation. Yeah, I think that's the way for an enlightened society to operate. Unfortunately, I think we've been moving away from it with um, mm. the way the Internet's been trending and the way that social media's actually been working and and uh, the way that broadcast journalism has been trending. But ultimately, a, country, uh, a nation, a society that doesn't pay attention to the objective reality and makes it up as they go along, they're really headed for trouble in the longer term. Well, we're doing our part in the broadcast media to stand up for objective reality, <laughs> since that's something that I guess you need to stand up for now and, and for, uh, you know, verifiable evidence gathering methods and all of that and, and peer review. And, and I thank you for doing the work that you're doing and, and for coming on the show to talk to us about it. It's, it's really uh, – <laughs> there's something so uh, comforting in this time of upheaval to hear from – a researcher who is simply telling you about what their research shows. Uh, here's what the data says. That is, you know, for me, something I can grab onto. Ah, I know. I know that this is uh, th this is at least a little bit rock solid uh, or a little bit uh, a little bit more than uh, what I get in the news every day. So I, re I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about it. Well, I really appreciate partnering with Adam Ruins Everything. I think I've reached uh, more people with that video segment that uh, people see on YouTube than I have with any op-ed piece I've written in the New York Times. Oh, wow. I, I'm really happy that that's the case. And uh, I mean, b uh, but I encourage people to go read the op-ed pieces because you know what? They're probably a lot better written than our uh, silly little cable show. But uh, uh, well, thank you so much, Doug. OK, thank you. 
Thanks so much again to Douglas Massey for coming on the show. I hope you guys found that interview as fascinating as I did. Uh, I think some of that stuff is going to help me win a couple Facebook arguments in a couple weeks. <laughs> Just kidding. I quit Facebook because I found it too stressful. And that was it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in. Our producer is Sharon Morris. And if you like the show, please, please be sure to tell a friend. Post about it on Twitter. Put it on your Tumblr, perhaps. Remember Tumblr? It's still around. Maybe you got a couple followers left hanging around who'd be interested in finding about the show. Or just, hey, rate it on your favorite podcast app. And leave a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It really helps us out. Again, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, is currently in the off-season, but you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Everything, or you can watch episodes on the Watch True TV app. Until then, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Uh, bye-bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.